You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When you go to the doctor, one of the first things that they do is they check your vital signs. These are the indicators that determine whether the most essential functions of your body are working. Before they will move on to address anything else in your health, they check your vital signs. Because doctors know that it's kind of pointless to treat you for tendonitis if you're on the verge of a heart attack. There there is an order of priority when it comes to our health. And if you were to check the vital signs of American churches, you would realize that many are in poor health. Many are in critical condition. And one of the reasons why many American churches are in poor health is because of their disordered priorities. Disordered priorities. You see, churches will establish slick media and marketing while their leadership structures lack accountability and promote abuses. They build out bells and whistles music ministries while they lack effective shepherding structures. There are churches that have robust social media presence while they lack any meaningful neighborhood presence. In our text for today, we see that there are priorities as it relates to the health of a local church. And we're going to get into this text and we're going to listen as the Apostle Paul shares some of the essentials of, of the Christian life and the Christian community by engaging the elders at Ephesus, the church leaders at Ephesus with a final farewell message to them. What he wants to do is he wants to remind them of their responsibilities and their role in the local church. Like, what are you on the hook for, local church leaders? And in this text, he specifically addresses the elders, the authoritative leaders of the church. But what we see in this text It's very useful for everyone sitting in the pews. It's very, very important. Because what Paul wants to do, we see in this text, is he doesn't just want to leave behind transformed individual Christians. He wants to leave behind a transformed missionary community. That's what God wants to do, and that's what is reflected in the Apostle Apostle Paul's desires. And he knows, Paul knows, that if he's going to leave behind a healthy, faithful, missionary community, then he has to address that essential, that that vital sign of healthy leadership. Healthy leadership. Leaders must remain steadfast in their calling that they have received from the Lord. Now, we get insight in this passage into what the local church is supposed to look like. And the legacy that Paul wanted to leave behind. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to do a bit of exposition. I want to walk through the text. I want to unpack it. We're not going to do any fancy homiletic. We're going to get down into the nuts and bolts of this text. And we're going to draw out a couple principles. But 
even though this is specifically addressed to local church leaders, this is important for every Christian for at least two reasons. The first reason is that the vast majority of the material in this passage is the responsibility of every Christian. It just has a heightened importance for leaders. But second, I think it's important for all God's people to know what healthy local church leadership should look like so that you can celebrate it, so that you can encourage your leaders, and so that you can follow healthy leaders and distinguish healthy local church leaders from dysfunctional, ungodly local church leaders. Because I know not all of you are going to be here for the long run. The Lord may call you to other places, but I want you to have the paradigms in your head. And I want our college, our, our, our college kids that are going off to remember and understand what does healthy leadership in a local church look like. Because I don't want you to experience church hurt. I don't want you to experience any uh, dysfunctional experiences in the local church. And so it's important that you understand what it's supposed to look like. So I want to draw out four central leadership characteristics that we see in healthy church leadership. What we're going to see this morning is that faithful leadership demands integrity or wholeness. Second, faithful leaders don't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Third, faithful leaders sacrifice themselves for the Lord's mission. They don't sacrifice the Lord's mission for themselves. And finally, faithful leaders are shepherds. Faithful leaders are shepherds. So let's, let's walk through, let's unpack this text and begin with what we see in our first point. In verses 18 through 19 and verses 33 through 35, we see that faithful leadership demands integrity or wholeness. The first thing I want to say is that many people, when they think about integrity, they reduce integrity to mere honesty. Okay? But if you pay careful attention to the actual word, you will notice something. Now, what is an integer? A whole number, right? Integrity, right? That's the only math thing I got for this morning, right? <laughs> I can't help you on anything else. <laughs> Integrity at its root is wholeness, flourishing. It's very similar to the Jewish idea of shalom. Shalom that's translated peace. It's not just the cessation of crazy. It's the presence of flourishing and wholeness in a holistic kind of way. Faithful leadership demands integrity. Paul bookends his message to the Ephesian elders by reminding them of the integrity with which he lived among them. You see that Paul's priority in addressing these elders at Ephesus is he wants to remind them of his life of integrity. Not first what he taught them, but first the life that he lived among them. Look at these passages, verses 18 through 19 and verses 33 through 35. Paul says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. 
serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jewish leaders. Again, I think it's important for us to recognize that all through the New Testament, there's this word that's used, hoiudaioi, the Jews. And a lot of times, uh, there are many different meanings for this. And some people have made an error in the past of interpreting this as spreading a wide net. It's always laying the blame at all Jewish people by virtue of their ethnicity. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's naming the characteristic experience he had in confrontation with the Jewish leadership that hounded him because they were having an, like, sort of like a, uh, an in-house battle as Jews. Because remember, Paul was a Jew. All the 12 disciples were a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. It's important for us to remember that and never lose sight of that lest we give way to anti-Semitic thinking. Okay? Amen? Amen? That's what I'm talking about. All right. So Paul says that. Then in verses 33 through 35, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And then he calls them to the same in verse 28. Look at verse 28. He tells these elders that their responsibility is not just to pay careful attention to the flock, to the people of God. Notice what he says in the text. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. A ministry leader's first responsibility is to be a real deal follower of Christ. Which is to say that leaders must ensure that their life matches their gospel. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. Before thinking about anyone else's issues or needs for growth or need for repentance, faithful leaders in the church are those who think about their own need for growth, their own need for repentance, their own need for faith, and this is what helps to make them tender-hearted with the people that they're caring for. Because whatever issue they're dealing with, they're very familiar with similar struggles. And so they know how to be tender with those who are struggling through those same things. Local leaders of, leaders of the local church must be self-aware concerning their own life in Christ. They don't lie to others and they don't lie to themselves. That's essentially the essence of integrity. You don't lie to others and you don't lie to yourself. We are so easily duped and we lie to ourselves about our, our real estate, about our real status, about how we're doing. It's like all the time, you know, when, you, when I think about like, how am I doing? You know, I'm probably in pretty good shape. And then you get on the scale and you're like, something wrong with this thing. It's reading about 15 pounds too high, right? <laughs> Maybe it's just me, all right? But there's this idea, like we're all familiar with what it looks like to lie to yourself. Leaders of integrity don't lie to themselves. Here's why this is important. I have been flying quite a bit in the last month. I don't enjoy flying. Um, but... There's something that happens on every flight, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with it, and it's this. When you get on there, they do the perfunctory thing where the flight attendant gets up, and they tell you, 
if we're in the air and something happens and the, the air mass comes down, the first thing you're supposed to do is put your own air mask on and then help other people with their air mask. Because you can't be any good to somebody else if you pass out because you have not taken care of your own life. Now, the first thing I always think about that is, why are y'all telling me this before we're about to be 30,000 feet in the air in a big hunk of metal? But the second thing I always think of is, that is what life as a gospel leader is supposed to be. You must put your own oxygen mask on. You must have an, your own vibrant life in Christ before you can go out and have a similar impact in the lives of other people. That's our responsibility. I like how Pete Scazzaro says it. This is what Pete Scazzaro says. He puts it like this. Who you are as a person will always have a larger and longer impact on those around you than what you do. Your being with God or lack of being with God will trump eventually your doing for God every time. We cannot give what we do not possess. We cannot, we cannot help but give what we do possess. Listen to this. We can teach what we know, but we will reproduce who we are. We can teach what we know, but we will reproduce who we are. Sometimes we don't realize it, but our frustrations at not seeing a certain kind of life in the people around us is because we're not living the life, and so it's not reproducible from us. You see, you see what Scazzaro is saying? This is one of the reasons why most of the qualifications for elder in the pastoral epistles have to do with character, not gifting. You know what? One of the things that I think is most off kilter among American Christians is that we're more impressed by gifts than we are by character. And that's why a lot of American churches are so quick to put up gifted people who lack integrity. They build a huge structure and then it implodes. This happens time and time and time again. The list of fallen leaders and, and wrecked ministries is longer than your arm. And we must have enough humility to recognize that we are not immune to that. That we are all vulnerable to getting off kilter. I would much prefer that someone be unimpressed with my gifts but moved by my faithful life. Than to put the smoke screen in front of people through my gifts but my life is a wreck behind the scenes. That is not faithful local church leadership. I hate it that if you scratch behind a lot of gifted people, you see corruption underneath, deep corruption. If there, I mean, listen, think about this. If our work is to minister to our neighbors and to draw them into the Lord's love, if we're not walking with the Lord, how could we expect to lead others in walking with the Lord? Like, it makes no sense. Even more to the point of mission, if there is little integrity to your Christian life, what positive difference could you hope to uh, make in, in the lives of your neighbors? Really? I want you to notice three things on this point. 
in verse 20, take a look, we see that leaders of integrity demonstrate a consistency between their public and private lives. Do you see that? Paul says, I, I taught in public and private. I didn't cease to do it. I was the same person in private as I was in public. WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. In verse 21, we see that leaders of integrity demonstrate consistent cross-cultural love. Do you see that? He says, I didn't skip over people I didn't prefer to move to the people I did prefer. I love this. Paul preached the gospel across the most important ethnic and cultural boundaries of his day. Jews and Greeks, rich and poor, the Huxtables and the Bradys, those who work in the White House and those who work in Waffle House, as Brother Josh once said to me. I said, come on, Josh, let's go. That's what we see. It's consistent. Lest you think again and again, I will make it. Listen, I want you to hear this. I will make an end of speaking to cross-cultural love and mission when the Bible makes an end of teaching it. It's all over the place. And if you're getting tired of it, the problem is not with the text. The problem is with your heart. It's our hearts that need to grow and change, to grow in curiosity about what it means, the mystery of the gospel, Jews and Greeks, all different polarities meeting at a common center, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Leaders of integrity demonstrate consistent cross-cultural love. And in verse 24, take a look, we see that leaders of integrity aren't just living for the moment. They take the long view and aim to finish their course and their ministry that they received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Faithful gospel leaders are aiming to finish their course, not just for immediate pyrotechnics and fireworks right now. We take the long view, the long view on our own lives, the long view on our own ministries, and the long view on the lives of the people that we serve. I've had a lot of people in the history of Grace Mosaic, when they come in here and they get frustrated and scandalized that there are people in here who are not living out the Christian faith 100% to the hilt. And I've had to often remind these folks that we have a lot of people who are coming back to the faith for the first time. Or they're new to the Christian faith, and they are trying to figure things out. So pay attention to their trajectory. Where have they come from in comparison to where they are? And where does that say they're on their way to? And I want to leave room for everyone on their own particular journey to have the grace and the space to grow up into the faith. And not to feel blasted into the faith or manipulated into the faith or guilted into the faith in unhealthy ways. But to be wooed into the faith. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so one of the ways that we seek to bring God's people to repentance is by pouring out kindness on people, showing them the Lord's kindness and imploring them to come back, appealing to them. The next important characteristic of faithful leaders is that faithful leaders don't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Everything that is profitable 
for Christians in their lives. Now, as he offered this tearful farewell to the elders in Ephesus, Paul lets these beloved friends and co-laborers know that he delivered to them everything essential from God's word, everything that is necessary for their ongoing vitality. But we should take note of a very important aspect of this passage. Paul says it two times. I did not shrink back. I did not shrink back. Paul is claiming to have discharged his ministry with such faithfulness that if anyone under his preaching, teaching, or care should fail to enter the kingdom, that it would not be because he failed in his preaching and teaching ministry. And there's an allusion going on here to Ezekiel chapter 33. And in that passage, Ezekiel is compared to a watchman on the the, the wall of of the, the city. And what a watchman would do is they would keep an eye out for enemies that were approaching the city. And if any enemies approached the city, the watchman would cry out to the people of the city. Now, if the watchman cried out and there were people who didn't listen to the warning and they ended up being killed by the enemy, the watchman was not held accountable for that. But if the enemy was approaching and the watchman was silent, their blood would be on his hands. And what Paul is saying is that your blood is not on my hands. I have told you everything that is necessary for life and godliness. I did not shrink back. Now here's a question. Why would Paul raise the issue of shrinking back? Why would he raise this issue? I think that the reason becomes clear when you begin to think of the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. Think about the experiences that he had. In the course of his ministry, Paul witnessed a fundamental againstness from the world with respect to the Lord, his word, and his messengers. Whenever the truth of God came into conflict with the way that people wanted to live and the way that they thought. Paul knew that the word of God is disruptive. The word of God is disruptive. Do you expect the word of God to disrupt your life? Do you expect the word of God to controvert your thinking? You see, a lot of people, they want, they want, have you, you remember that old movie, uh, The Stepford Wives? It's basically a story about, you know, these computerized spouses, these computerized wives. The guys could, could basically uh, uh, come up with a digital wife and she became the, the mirror image of what he wanted. But they weren't real people. A lot of times, that's what we want from God. We want a God who doesn't challenge the way we think, who doesn't call us to to deep repentance, that that doesn't call us down a hard road. We want God to reflect our own thinking back to us. But what kind of God would he be if that's what he did? You expect that God aligns with all the ways that you think? Just think about the logic of that. That's illogical. Because otherwise, you would be God, and you would be flawless and perfect. And everyone says, yeah, no one's perfect. But then when they're challenged on the points of imperfection, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. And they get defensive. Paul knew that there was a fundamental againstness. And the word of God is disruptive. And it brings conflict into the lives of stubborn, stiff-necked people and calls them to choose today who you will serve. No one can serve two masters. 
There's a challenge in the preaching of the word of God. The hard ground must be broken up in order to plant the seed of the gospel. And Paul faced very difficult situations with very difficult people, both inside and outside of the church. And although the preaching of the word of God creates a certain kind of unity, it also creates a certain kind of division and antithesis. And Because Je- Jesus is both the prince of peace, but he also said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I bring division. I bring division. Because here's the deal. There is an antithesis. Jesus is both the chief cornerstone and the stone that the builders rejected. The rock of offense. And faithful leaders are both the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life. Paul leverages that imagery in 2 Corinthians of when the the Romans would would do a a triumphal procession after they conquered a people group. There would be be incense and all kinds of, you know, burning uh, uh, sacrifices. And that smell to those who belonged to the Roman Empire was the smell of victory. That smelled like good news. But to to those who opposed the Roman Empire, it smelled like death. And what Paul is saying to those who belong to the kingdom, Jesus, this is the preaching of the gospel is the aroma of life. And to those who are fundamentally against the kingdom, all the things that are taught in the Christian faith and preached in the Christian faith and embodied in the Christian faith sounds like death. It smells like death. In the course of a faithful gospel ministry, you will experience the already and the not yet. Whether we realize it or not, this is what church leaders are signing up for. To take, take on those challenges. To face those problems. And honestly, this is what every Christian is signing up for. This is what every Christian signed up for. And I want to give you some counsel. I want, if you want a sense of healthy and faithful ministry, don't try to get it from social media and YouTube. Don't do your research on YouTube. By the way, YouTube is not research. (laughs) I'm surprised that needs to be said in our day and age, but it does. YouTube is not research. Googling is not research. Exactly. Okay? (laughs) What I would have you do, if you want to see a model of faithful ministry, what does it look like for God's people to engage faithful ministry? Look at the life of Jesus and look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Look at the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. What did it look like? He faced constant opposition, misunderstandings, false accusations. He experienced heartbreak, suffering, mockery, and his ministry required the ultimate sacrifice of his life. That's Jesus. What did Paul's experience look like? He experienced encouraging and supportive partnership from some, like the Philippians. But also, he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he experienced more imprisonments, countless beatings, He was often near death. He experienced floggings. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea. He was in constant danger. Danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from his own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the country. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. What was the Apostle Paul's normative experience in ministry? On the mission. What was it? Toil and hardship, he says. Many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, 
often without food and exposure, daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, an astonishing felt weakness. Let me ask you something. What are your hidden assumptions as it relates to our mission here in Northeast D.C.? What are your hidden assumptions? What are your hidden assumptions about ministry in general and our mission in particular? Listen, you can criticize prosperity preachers all day long, but if your expectation is that everybody is going to love you and everything that you have to say, that they will, that they will melt under the power of your wise words and the beauty and authority of your, of your words and comply with your encouragements and expectations every time, you will be tempted to shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God when they resist. And functionally, you will be no different in your thinking from the prosperity teachers. Functionally, this is a gospel of success. Blessing, as you define it, and material prosperity is the will of God for your ministry. Let me ask you something. Do you think that all of our neighbors are going to like us and appreciate everything that we're trying to do in this neighborhood? Do you really think that? Do you think that there is some legitimate way to soften the call of Jesus to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him? If we need everybody to approve of everything that we do, then you will shrink back. When the way of Jesus clashes with the way of the world and with the way of immature, underdeveloped Christians, they exist. You know, many churches are dragged off track because they allow loud voices of immature, ungodly, impatient Christians to weigh on them to the degree that they shy away, they shrink back, and they just give in to try and make life a little easier for themselves. No, that's precisely at the point where local church leaders need to lean against you for your benefit. In your moments of sanity and clarity, you know that these are the ways that Jesus has called us to live. But in your moments where you are out your mind, you don't want the good. You don't want to pursue it. We all need it. We're all prone to wander, right? We're prone to wander intellectually, to choose intellectual paradigms that make life easier for us. We're all prone to miscalculate ministry and life decisions and all that. And that's why God has gifted us with people who are called specifically to tend to you, to hold out the light and the hope of the gospel to you, and to call you back home again and again. That's love. True love does not allow people to destroy their own lives. That's not what love does. If I sit back and watch you destroy your own life, how can I possibly call myself your pastor? If you're about to make colossal mistakes that are going to introduce ruin into your life, it is not loving for me, nor gracious of me, to withhold the hard words that might bring you a soft heart. That's Jesus' kind of love. In this passage, there seems to be an obvious recognition of the fact that there are hard parts of Scripture that we will find ourselves afraid of proclaiming. In every culture and within every cultural moment, there are certain parts of Scripture 
that we're tempted to conceal, ignore, or we, we try to do exegetical gymnastics to try and fit it into the Christian faith. Like, no, 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 no. If you just twist it a little and you stand like this and you hold your leg up like this, you can see how it's Christian. <laughs> no, no. And one of, one of the favorite moves is to try and bring everything under the umbrella of grace. Oh, it's all grace, so everything goes. No, that's distinctly not what grace means. Grace is not just forgiveness for your failures. It actually transforms you so that you no longer return to your vomit like the dog in Proverbs. Returning to your error and your folly, your godless thinking, your secular thinking. You know what secularity is? It's simply trying to approach the world as if it were neutral and not governed by the Lord who created it. That's secularity. And whenever... You approach the world through that lens. You are bound to veer off track. This is our father's world. And he wants us to not just see see what's in the scriptures. He wants us to see the world through the scriptures. A God-entranced view of the world. There is... There are always different pockets of scripture in different places and times that Christians are tended to conceal. But where does this fear come from? I want to give a few of what I think are root causes of why we shrink back. If you want to know why you shrink back, listen to this list and and consider where you may be on the hook and may need to seek repentance, Christian. First, I would say lack of control. You can't control how people are going to respond if you teach them the things that are true. They might leave. They might pick it in front of your church. They might do podcasts about you. I got a friend in ministry who someone didn't like the faithful biblical teaching that he was giving. They created a whole podcast just to tear him and his church down for week after week. And they widely distributed that podcast to as many people as they could in the neighborhood. Some real sinister stuff. You can't control how people are going to respond when you tell them the truths of Scripture. And that's scary. It makes us shrink. Next, concerns about church growth. A lot of church planters, when they're first starting out, they're like, if, if people don't like what I'm saying, they may not come. And so there's all this, this moving and, and finagling and, 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 and manipulation to try and put things in a way that's easy for people to receive. And... and there's a good impulse in that, in, in terms of contextualizing the scriptures. But when it moves from contextualization to capitulation, to syncretizing the Christian faith with worldly values, that's where it goes too far. That's where it goes too far. Concerns about church growth. We cannot be so concerned about nickels and noses that we shrink back. Because what you see all through the story of Acts is that it was, a, it was a non-shrinking church that grew and expanded and impacted the world, that blessed the world. Not a shrinking church. Remember, I keep telling you this over and over again. If you want to see what a shrinking back church looks like, it's not hard to see. Just look across American Christianity. All those churches that shrunk back from the whole counsel of God are dying with a quickness 
Why? Because what good is a church without a gospel? A crossless church that's just providing social services. It's no better or no more necessary than another nonprofit who will do it better than we can anyhow. It's a pointless exercise in religiosity. If your local church has no, no firm gospel, clear kingdom contours, an ethical norm, uh, a rule of life, which we have, there's a challenge to us. We don't need to pursue church growth strategies over faithfulness to the whole counsel of God. Next, what makes us shrink back? The need for approval. Or another way of putting it, the fear of man. If I talk about this, then people won't like me. Listen, why do you need the affirmation of the peasants when you got the love of the king? <laughs> he has spoken his affirmation over you. You don't need people's approval. You don't need them to like you in order for you to love them faithfully. And it's oftentimes we are so enamored by being liked that we're no good to our neighbors. And we're no good to one another. There's an unfaithfulness there. Next, what causes us to shrink back? The leadership pride of self-reliance. As if the ministry depends upon us and our performance and our ministry abilities. And if I perform just right, if the people like the show, then everything will be okay in the church. Look, look. sometimes y'all need to not like the show. You know, there's a lot that pertains to helping a person to be healthy and whole that is not enjoyable. It's just not. It's not pleasant. But it's good. Even though it may not be good to you, it will be good for you. What causes us to shrink back? Shepherding nightmares. Oh, man, if we have to engage in discipline with this person, it's going to be a headache and a nightmare. I'd rather not get into all this fuss, so I'll shrink back. What else? Shame. I'm ashamed of the things that we find in Scripture because I don't know how to interpret it or make sense of it. And there are indeed hard things in the Scriptures that are very difficult to make sense of, but they all happen within a broader story and narrative. Next thing that causes us to shrink back, honestly, is personal doubts. How can I communicate this to others or teach others this when I'm not sure I'm convinced of this? Which is why we need the global and historic church to help us to get context and contours. I want you to understand that part of our responsibility as leaders in the church is to offend you all the way to glory. That's part of my job. And you might say, no, that can't be. That just sounds like an excuse for being a jerk. Um, it could be. But where, where I'm working off of is the idea that the gospel is an offense. That's what the scriptures say. So if I'm faithfully preaching the gospel to you and our elders and shepherding team and our, our deeks are, are helping to lead our community more deeply into that life, then you got to know. That, like, it's going to offend you at some point. If we're going to lead you into gospel living, it's got to offend you. It's got to confront you. It's got to contradict you. There is an impulse in the human heart, which is why Paul exhorts these elders. There's an impulse in the sinful human heart 
to seek the easy, painless, crossless road. But we have to remember that he's reminding these leaders of their responsibility. They're on the hook. And he's also reminding them that failure on the part of ministry leaders is more grievous in the eyes of the Lord than failures of lay people. Everyone likes to say all sins are the same. No, they're not. All sins will equally get you judged, but not all sins are equal. That makes an ethical mess. You know what our confessional documents say? Westminster Larger Catechism, question 150, says this. Question and answer. Question. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? Answer. All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Question 151. What are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? Answer. Sins receive their various aggravations. Sins get worse. They get heightened. They deepen. One, from the person's offending. It's one thing for a three-year-old to lie. It's another thing for the president of the United States to lie. It's different, right? Because of their person. Next, if they're of riper age, of greater experience of grace, it's worse for someone who is seminary trained to fall into a particular sin than someone who has not been theologically trained because they know more, so they have greater responsibility. Those who are eminent for profession, gifts, place, office, or guides to other. You hear that? If you are in a position of leadership and you fall into some sin, a lay person falls into the same sin, but it's heightened for a leader. Why? Because for a leader, you can drag down other people with you who have been observing you, who have been taught that they're supposed to look to you for an example, and you damage their faith. It can be more aggravated from the parties who are offended, depending on who you hurt. If you sin against the vulnerable, the marginalized, the weak, those who are in difficult positions where they can't defend themselves, that is a more heightened sin than sinning against the powerful. There are all kinds of proof texts and texts that back this material up. Footnotes to this. From the nature and quality of the offense. Lying to someone is not as grievous as murdering them. You see, there are all different kinds of ways, and so these leaders need to know they're on the hook. They're on the hook. There are greater expectations and accountability for them. And so this is why it's so urgent that we leaders do not shrink back from giving you the whole counsel of God. Because we don't want to be on the, we're on the hook before the Lord. And if we sin against you in that way by withholding from you what God has given us to give to you, our sin is more grievous. Next, verse 19, faithful leaders sacrifice themselves for the Lord's mission. They don't sacrifice the Lord's mission for themselves. Do you see what Paul says in this verse? With all humility and with tears and with trials. That's how he did his ministry, which is very different from what we have been witnessing in too many church leaders today who use the ministry to build their platform, to enrich themselves, to make a name for themselves. Instead of feeding the sheep, they fleece the sheep. Instead of protecting the flock, they prey on the flock. Not only should our hearts be broken at all of the stories of corruption and abuse, the podcasts, the docu-series that tell us about the implosion of all of these ministries that have been built on faulty foundations, 
but we must also we must also be sobered and embrace humility and plead with the Lord to keep us and every day turn our hearts to the Lord again and again. That's what the leaders of this church are aspiring to do and be for the good of this community. And notice that Paul says that he served the Lord with tears. Faithful leaders see people reject the hope of the gospel and it breaks their heart. Faithful leaders see false teachers peddling lies and it breaks their hearts. Faithful leaders see Christians embracing false teaching and it breaks their hearts. Faithful leaders see the people of God suffering tragedies and when they're treated like enemies for holding out the truth of the gospel, when when professing Christians depart from the faith, when they see ministry leaders fail morally, it breaks their hearts. There's a tenderheartedness. And they actually want to do something about it. Ministry, y'all, is suffering. Ministry is suffering. And inasmuch as you try to make ministry something other than suffering, you corrupt what Christian ministry really is. We must embrace it. We must look into the darkness, lean into the darkness, because we have the light. Finally, I want to say this. Faithful leaders are shepherds. Faithful leaders are shepherds. Listen to what he says in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Listen, faithful leaders in the local church are not CEOs. They're not board members. They're not managers. They're shepherds. As Dr. Lynn Anderson put it, faithful leaders smell like sheep. Faithful leaders smell like sheep. Who exactly oversees and cares for a flock? A shepherd. Shepherds do. And, and in this text, I want you to understand that Paul draws a distinction between shepherds and wolves. Shepherds and wolves. And he wants them to be on the lookout. Now, here's the thing. Everybody in our day wants to play nice. No one wants to identify with any clarity wolves. I want to tell you very bluntly. Wolves are anyone who poses as a Christian leader who tries to drag you away from the faith once for all delivered over to the saints. It's that clear. If they are willfully trying to pull you away from the faith once delivered over to the saints, they are wolves. Prosperity teachers are wolves. Those who are trying to draw you away from the historic Christian sexual ethic. Wolves. Call a spade a spade. Recognize the evil for what it is. We can't play nice. We have to be clear. Clarity is kindness. We have to tell people who are under the impression that their way of life, which is deeply offensive to the Lord, that their way of life that they think is acceptable for the Lord... We have to be clear and loving that it's not, or else we will give them soothing words all the way on their walk to judgment. That is not love. That is not love. And listen, nobody in here is more loving than God. He's the most loving of all. But his love is a transformative love that calls us out of the sins that are killing us. And that's the case for all of us. We must be aware, and we must be able to draw a distinction between the behaviors and the teaching of wolves and the teaching and behavior of shepherds. And notice that Paul calls the church the church of God. 
The church of God. This is a possessive genitive in the Greek text, which is to say that the church belongs to God. Okay? Now, listen. Grace Mosaic is my church, not in the sense of, of ownership, but stewardship. There's a big difference. Because a lot of people, when they say this is my church, they say it in the sense of like, so I can do what I want with it. No, that is distinctly not the case for leaders in the Christian church. I can't do whatever I want with Grace Mosaic. The leaders of this church just can't do whatever they want with Grace Mosaic. This is God's church. Here's the deal. In, in, I can only say that this is my church in the sense that it's my responsibility, my calling to serve this community. Because here's the deal. I didn't obtain this church with my own blood. Jesus did. I didn't justify this church and set it free from sin. Jesus did. I didn't raise this church from the dead or secure its future. Jesus did. As leaders, we are called to equip our people for life and prepare our people for death. And in order to do that, we must give you the whole counsel of God. Because without the whole counsel of God, you will follow the whole counsel of the world. And that leads to death. That does not lead to life. It does not lead to life. Faithful leadership is one of the vital signs of a healthy church. So let us remember the paradigm as Paul gives it to us through his message to the Ephesian elders. And let us be courageous and bold and put ourselves out there. Put the word of God out there and trust that his word goes out and does not fail to accomplish what he sent it for. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.